Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Wisdom. That's, kind of, that's quite a burden. I don't know how, how much wisdom I'll impart. But thank you very much, Frank. Uh, and thanks to everybody involved in, uh, in arranging this and organizing this and all the and all the sponsors, and it's a wonderful uh, program uh, with all my time that I've spent overseas. Anytime there's community gatherings uh, that are dealing with uh, the great international issues and taking a, uh, a look further beyond the horizon of their own communities and states and, and uh, uh, lives, uh, I think that's a very wonderful and special thing. And I particularly am delighted to be in Dallas, and I kind of relish any chance to come back to Dallas because this is where I started 30 years ago, 30 years ago, um, with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and so this brings me full circle. I think 30 years ago, I think Dallas was, uh, was at the center of the universe, <laughs> or so it seemed. I mean, who shot JR was on the minds of, uh, of everybody all over the world. Uh, and uh, the Hunt brothers uh, and the silver market uh, collapse were, were dominating the news. George Getschow, my mentor and former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, who's now at the Graduate School of Journalism at North Texas, uh, we chased and pursued that, that, that story. I think there were wonderful examples of the, the Fed chairman who was uh, ch uh, uh, leading emergency meetings in his pajamas uh, because the margin calls were, were, were so urgent at uh, bizarre hours of the day. Uh, and then it was also the great case when, when, when the Hunt brothers and Bunker Hunt particularly were testifying in Congress, and one congressman asked him, well, how much are you guys worth? And he said, I don't know. And the congress uh, congressman said, yeah, it's, it's astonishing. What do you mean you don't know how much you're worth? To which Bunker famously said, well, a billion dollars isn't worth what it used to be. <laughs> that kind of encapsulated the situation back then. Now. Here I am, I, I'm, I'm returning to Dallas and back in Dallas and writing about the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, the poorest of the world, the people, you know, the, the, the classic bottom billion, the bottom of the pyramid, the one dollar a day uh, people who, who will tell you that a dollar isn't worth what it used to be. Uh, and so welcome, as, as I'm, I'm calling this in my, my tour around uh, uh, the country and the places speaking about the book, as I call it, the Enough is Enough Outrage and Inspire Tour. So we're about to go on a journey of, uh, of outrage uh, and hopefully um, inspiration. Uh, Scott, my partner at the Wall Street Journal for a long time and, and co-author of the book, uh, would have loved to be here. They just had twins, so his hands are, are full with that. Uh, the problem for you all is, is that of the outrage and inspire uh, combination, I'm the outrage and Scott's the inspire, so. <laughs> You all are stuck with the outrage. <laughs> so, so, strap yourselves in. Uh, outrage and inspire. That was our, our, our mantra uh, for Scott and ourselves. It was, as we were 
we're writing our book, uh, uh, Enough, Why the World's Poor Starve in an Age of Plenty. And during the many moments of, of writer's block uh, that we would have, Scott and I could kind of be found muttering to ourselves, kind of outrage and inspire, outrage and inspire, because those, those were the two main goals of, of our writing and what we wanted to accomplish. Outrage that we brought hunger with us into the 21st century. After the Green Revolution was one of the great technological and scientific achievements and wonders of the, 20, of the 20th century. So here we are at the beginning of the 21st century, and one billion people go to bed hungry every night. One billion people are chronically malnourished in a world where, where we're producing more food than ever before. We've explored the heavens. We've, we've wired the world for the internet. We've, we've done all sorts of amazing uh, technological and scientific wonders. And yet a million people still go to bed hungry every night. Outrage. Inspire that hunger is one of the great problems of the world that we can actually do something about. It's a problem that can be conquered. It's an effort that everybody can be a part of. Everybody can be an advocate. They can do something with their money. They can roll up their sleeves. They can go to Africa. Farming is one of the, and, and food production is one of the elemental tasks uh, of the world. It, 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 it's something simple. We have the know-how, we have the technology, we have the science. Uh, we can do this, and it can basically become the singular accomplishment and achievement of, of our generation. So outrage and inspire, why, why is that important? I mean, I figured that outrage and inspiration are, are vital to setting the grassroots ablaze, which is something that needs to happen uh, if we're going to shake off the complacency and the negligence that's basically driven hunger to historic hot ties. And it's great to see uh, uh, some of George's students here and other, other uh, younger people here, and particularly the, the, the journalism students, because it's, it's the sense of outrage uh, that will inspire and fuel their, their passion, and hopefully through their writing, uh, inspire other people uh, to get involved. I mean, we were talking, can you guys hear me okay? Is this better? Is this better? Yeah. I'll lean down. <laughs> I won't repeat myself. Uh, no, George and I were talking last night uh, about this, and journalism is a very uh, you know, cynical profession. But it's odd. We're cynics, and we're also great optimists at the same time, because we, we believe that through our writing, through our broadcast, through, through whatever means of communication we're involved in, in journalists is that people will read, they'll hear, they'll see, and hopefully they'll take action um, and be inspired to do something. And outrage and inspiration are also particularly important because today we find ourselves at a moment of great opportunity in the battle against hunger. The Obama administration, since its first minutes actually in, in, in office, has made agriculture development and ending hunger a top foreign policy goal and priority. In his inaugural address, he said something to the effect of, to the poor nations of the world, we will work together to make your farms flourish and to let clean waters flow, to nourish hungry bodies and to feed starving minds. Help your farms flourish. 
it's the essence of what needs to be done to, to, to attack uh, uh, hunger and stop the soaring rates that we've seen. Since then, his inaugural address, he's repeated his commitment uh, at, at many venues, at, at the G8 meetings, at the United Nations, at the G20 meetings. He's kind of rallied uh, the other heads of state of the G20, uh, G8 countries to uh, uh, commit $20 billion over the next three years uh, for agriculture uh, development spending. We'll get to some other numbers uh, that, that will show how, how troubling and how necessary uh, that is, of that, is, is th uh, the U.S. commitment is $3.5 billion over the next three years. Uh, Secretary of State Clinton has also carried the message uh, far and wide in her trip to, to Africa. Uh, and their idea is to make agriculture development, increasing food production, reducing hunger, making a big dent on hunger, uh, one of the primary tools and weapons of, of soft diplomacy. That uh, there's several passages in the book with uh, uh, with 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 Bono, uh, the great Irish singer and, and and activist, and he says one night he was at home in in Dublin and the phone rang and it was uh, General Jones on the phone who I believe is now the, the the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was calling and he wanted to discuss soft diplomacy and uh, the development aspects and, and work that uh, Bono had been in, involved in. And he said that basically with these instruments and, and soft diplomacy, even I as a general recognize we can accomplish more with these tools than we can with a battalion of tanks. Uh, so this effort by the Obama administration is, it's not only in the White House or the State, and the State Department, it's, it's in the Pentagon, it's in the National Security Council, and uh, you know, they're figuring, and, and what the UN has said is by the year 2030, with the increase in demand for food from places like China and India, as their populations become more prosperous, their middle classes expand, uh, and with the, pop, the general population increase, by 2030 the world be, will be needing 50% more food produced. Now where is this going to come from? We have to get places like Africa growing as much food uh, as they possibly can, not only to feed themselves, but to help to help feed uh, the world. So it could be a great a great irony that this continent that we've neglected for so long in terms of Afri in terms of agricultural development and agricultural production could indeed be our salvation and our savior in the future. So what they're looking at is the construct of of hunger and increasing food secure and increasing food production and agriculture development investment as as a matter of national security. They call it the Global Food Security Initiative. It's not the Global Hunger Initiative or the Global Food Initiative. It's a Global Food Security Issue. It's a matter of national interest for the various countries of the world, and it's a matter of, of, of international interest. And what we have at this moment of opportunity is not only kind of this call to action and hopefully this, this kind of uh, amalgamation of political will that's also been so lacking on this front, in addition to that, we have this, this uh, rising movement uh, that we've seen and we chronicle uh, in the book, rising movement to end hunger that is based in faith-based organizations. Uh, you find it in churches, temples, synagogues, mosques. You see it in, among the philanthropists. Uh, Bill Gates kind of redirecting his, his philanthropic spending from health issues 
into agriculture uh, uh, production issues. And at the World Food Prize in Des Moines a week or two ago, he said uh, that it's his belief, uh, he and his wife and at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that the best way to alleviate poverty uh, and to uh, uh, raise the incomes of the very poorest countries is by the, the, the development of the small farmers um, in those countries and the multiplier effect that can come from their economies that way. So it's among, it's among the, the, the faith-based organizations, among the philanthropists, it's on college campuses, uh, it's in corporate boardrooms uh, that we're seeing. So now is the time to seize on this, on this momentum and the time to say to the, to the leaders, let's keep it up, uh, we're willing to follow. And here's where the outrage and inspiration comes in. What we need to do is create this, this clamor, this grassroots clamor, that hunger won't be tolerated in the 21st century. It's a clamor that needs to be heard in Washington and needs to be heard in all the capitals uh, of, of the world. That let's make ending hunger, as I said, the next great populist cause. And in the past, you know, there, there's precedence for this. In the past several years, or, or, or even in, since the start of this new century, we've seen governments move on a number of issues. We've seen them move on debt relief for the world's poorest nations. Why not hunger? We've seen them take great strides in launching an assault on AIDS. Why not hunger? We've seen them put climate change at the top of the world's agenda. Why not hunger? What we say in the book is that increasing agriculture production and ending hunger basically underlies all these development efforts and all these development issues. Why was debt relief so important? Because it literally took food out of the mouths of so many people, and particularly so many children. The interest payments that were being made by some of the, the African countries just to service their debt, just on their interest payments, it wasn't paying down to principal or anything, those payments, those service payments, were greater than the amount of development aid that was coming into the countries. The money flow was going, was, was, was in reverse, it was going backwards. It, it, it deprived these countries and their populations, the resources, to develop their agriculture to feed, to feed their populations. On the assault on AIDS, you know, the priority has been, and very laudable priority and great and, and, and marvelous success that they've had, has been to get the drugs into, into Africa, to make them available and affordable. You know, and it's been, a, it's been a great and laudable goal and a lot of money raised into the Global Fund and, and President Bush's uh, PEPFAR is one of his, his uh, uh, signature uh, foreign policy accomplishments. But the question, what people were eventually finding is, is that in Africa you, you're dealing with this really deadly intersection and this, this, this head-on collision between AIDS and hunger. And people began seeing, well, wait a minute, what good is it delivering and having the availability of these AIDS drugs for people who are severely malnourished and hungry? The AIDS drugs are very strong. They need a body that's reasonably nourished to absorb them, to have this Lazarus type effect where people basically get off their deathbeds and several weeks, several months later they're, they're healthy, they're back in their fields. You need a healthy body, you need, you need a level of nourishment to do that. So people started asking what good are all the AIDS drugs as long as hunger is still uh, a problem. The Africans have a great saying uh, that kind of giving drugs, giving this medicine to a hungry person, to a starving person, is like washing your hands and then drying them into dirt. It's counterproductive. 
I mean, what do we, what's on all our medicine that we get? Take with food. We figured that didn't apply to Africa on this issue. So we won't solve the AIDS problem without solving the hunger problem. Climate change. We won't be able to claim victory on any front on any kind of climate change initiative unless we deal with the African farmers who are predicted to be the ones that would be most impacted uh, in the, in, in, in already in the Sahelian and the, the equatorial zones so that they can develop their agriculture uh, to have uh, uh, crops that will grow in, in, in drier conditions, drought-resistant uh, seeds. So you can't attack climate change without improving agriculture development. So why not hunger? We need to crank up the clamor and amplify the outrage. Outrage that we brought hunger with us into the 21st century, and not only brought it with us, but at ever-increasing numbers. As I said, it soared past one billion people this year, which in absolute numbers, that's more than ever before, and it's certainly more than before the Green Revolution uh, of the 1960s and 70s. Outrage that the prevalence of hunger has increased to basically these 1 billion people are 15, 16% of the world's population compared to just 13% a couple of years ago. We're giving back the gains of the Green Revolution of the 1960s and 70s that had put us ahead of the population, uh, of the population curve. It was one of the, 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 the things, I think, that Norman Borlaug, the, the Iowa plant breeder and, and, and the father of the Green Revolution, he just died several weeks ago, at the age of 95, still on the front lines of, of a lion in winter, still on the front lines uh, of the hunger fight to bring the Green Revolution to Africa. One of the things that he was proudest of is that he had given the world time to, by, by increasing uh, uh, food production with the, with the new strains of, of, of wheat and other crops that he had developed, had, given, had bought time for the world to get on top of the population problem. But over the last couple of decades of negligence and complacency, not only on the agriculture development and hunger issue, but also on the population issue, we're basically giving back the gains and the accomplishments that he had achieved in the Green Revolution. Outrage that 25,000 people every day die of hunger, malnutrition, and related diseases. Just think of it, that's three times as many daily deaths as occurred uh, during the I guess, 1994 genocide in Rwanda when an average of 8,000 people were killed each day during a 100-day orgy of killing. It was horrific. There's an international criminal tribunal that's been set up to prosecute the people responsible for that. But what about all those people dying of hunger? Those 25,000 people, that's the equivalent of 60 jumbo jets fully loaded crashing every day. Each day. Boy, there'd be one, God help us, major headlines, equivalent of 60, filled with the world's hungry people. Where do we read about that? Outrage that investment in agriculture development, particularly in Africa, dramatically slumped. It fell off the cliff, fell off the end of a table from $8 billion a year in the 1980s to about $3 billion this decade. Outrage that the rich world, the US, Europe, some of the other developed countries, 
their subsidies to their farmers amounted to $260 billion in 2007, while we, in the rich world, told the African governments not to spend one single dollar on subsidies to their farmers. Outraged that this has left African farmers alone among the farmers of the world, bearing 100% of the risk of an inherently risky business. Look, if a crop dies in the United States or Europe, in most cases, somebody's writing a check, usually the government or an insurance company. If a crop dies in Africa, people die. No checks being written by anybody. Outraged that the American food aid system has refused to modernize to do some kind of cash rather than all food. We'll have more on this later when we get to some of the slides. Outraged that much of the chronic hunger in the world today is man-made. I mean, certainly there's natural disasters uh, and, and that, that, that to trigger famine, uh, uh, drought, uh, tsunami. We've seen, we've seen some more of the, of, of the tsunami-borne uh, devastation again this year. Uh, there's a drought again now in the Horn of Africa. Uh, in Ethiopia, Kenya's been in drought for the last couple of years. You know, and, of course, hunger follows in the wake of, of, of war and corruption. There's still far too much of that going on, um, and particularly in many places of Africa. But so much of the day's hunger, and this is one of, the, one of the points we want to make in the book, is caused by bad policy that spans, bad policy decisions that spans the political spectrum in both the rich world and the poor. And that's avoidable. It's neglect. Hypocrisy. It's good intentions gone bad. You know, there's been our food aid policy, farm subsidies, our ethanol industry, our ethanol policy. You know, it's the self-interest of the Western countries that often puts their interest ahead of the interest of the, of the poor and the interest of the hungry. It's, well, who is that aid actually supposed to aid? Is it the people who are hungry, the people on the receiving end, or is it us who's giving it with all the, with all the, the, uh, the ties and conditionalities that we put on that aid? Outrage, and here's the newest one that, 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 that's come into my mind. You know, I mentioned the $3.5 billion that Obama's committed over three years, three and a half billion over three years for this global food, food security initiative. You know, already there's some voices in Congress muttering that President Obama's commitment uh, is too much. Hey, don't you know we're in the middle of a financial crisis? They say, where are we going to get that money? Well, look, they came up with $3 billion and spent it over a couple of months in their Cash for Clunkers program. $3 billion to get crappy cars off the road but when it comes basically for what they're ostensibly saying are the clunkers of the world, the hungry, they get stingy when it comes to the hungry. You know, there's the money there for that. Outraged that we have the tools and know how to end hunger, and yet we don't. You know, for Scott and I, our own outrage, I guess, began when we were researching a story, I think it was in, 19, it was in 2002, asking the question, why can't Africa feed itself? Why didn't the Green Revolution come to Africa after eliminating famine and having such great success in Asia, particularly in countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and China, countries that had horrible famines in the 50s and 60s? Suddenly, within a decade or so, they were surplus producers of food. India became exporters of, of, of wheat and rice. And in doing our research, we came across Norman Borlaug's uh, Nobel Peace Prize speech in 1970. He had won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for 
basically defusing one of the scourges and one of the great threats to mankind uh, uh, by putting uh, the production of food ahead of the population curve. You know, so Borlaug, this, this very humble Iowa plant breeder, is the father of the Green Revolution for his work on developing this new wheat strain. This is what he said, and it, it, it's very prophetic. It's a warning that he issued, and this is back in 1970. What Borlaug said was, man can and must prevent the tragedy of famine in the future instead of merely trying with pious regret to salvage the human wreckage of the famine as he has so often done in the past. We will be guilty of criminal negligence without extenuation if we permit future famines. Criminal negligence. Boy, Scott and I read that and the light went off in our brains. Aha! That's what we are, we thought. As we write about hunger, we're crime reporters. That book's a crime novel, in essence. It's nonfiction, George. George is an expert in nonfiction uh, narrative. It's not a novel. It's not nonfiction, but it's a, it's, 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 it's a crime story. As we reported about hunger, we were investigating one of the greatest crimes of our age. I mean, what else would you call it when 25,000 people a day are dying of hunger? That was in 2002. Then came the Ethiopian famine of 2003. It was Borlaug's criminal neglect come to life, or rather come to death. So I went to Ethiopia. I was based in Zurich, Switzerland at the time. 14 million people were on the doorstep of starving to death. That was a greater number than the epic famine of 1984, which many of us of a certain age here will remember for all the global hand-wringing that that famine inspired. It was the Live Aid concerts, the We Are the World, the Do They Know It's Christmas uh, songs. My first day in Ethiopia, I was in the office of the World Food Program, and one of their workers, Boli Karuchi, was giving me a briefing about what we'd be seeing on our travels into the, into the hunger zones. He kind of unfurled a map of, 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 of Ethiopia and all of Africa of where the problem was. As he was wrapping up this briefing, Voli gave me a piece of advice, a warning of sorts. And this is what he said, and this is, is something that, 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 that has kind of been my, my, my driving force since then, along with what Dr. Borlaug had said in his Nobel address. Voli told me, looking into the eyes of someone starving of hunger becomes a disease of the soul. What you see is that nobody should have to die of hunger. You know, wow. I thought about it, and I had received plenty of medical advice on my travels in Africa, you know, kind of an overdose, actually, of medical advice. You know, get your yellow fever shot, take your, take your malaria pills, you know, watch out for Bill Hartsey in standing water, don't even stand in, 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 in puddles. Uh, avoid the meningitis season, watch out for cholera zones. I'd never, bef ne never before been warned about my soul and a disease of my soul. The next day, Voli and I went down to the famine zones. And I discovered that, that, that Voli was right, because in a famine, the starving speak with their eyes. They're too weak to speak. Any kind of motion or is, is, is too much exertion, they kind of speak with their eyes. We drove, in, we drove up into the highlands. Now we go to the slides. We drove up into the highlands south of Addis Ababa, and in an emergency feeding tent full of starving children, there I looked into the eyes of people starving of hunger, and particularly the eyes of a five-year-old boy, Hargirso. 
He's the boy in the white. It's, it's, it's a strange photo that there's kind of light shining on him in kind of a, in kind of a, a halo scent, uh, sense, kind of totally unintentional, but that's the way it came out. Hargiris was five. He's the boy in the white shirt. He weighs 27 pounds, five-year-old boy, 27 pounds when he arrived at the clinic a few days earlier. He was the very portrait of, of famine, swollen head, bone-thin arms and legs, and his eyes? Well, his eyes were remarkable in a frightening way. They were deep black holes. There's no, no hint of, and, and, and look at the child next to him. There's no hint of play, playfulness that, that, that any child would have. There's kind of no even baleful beseeching of, as, as someone in such a dire situation would be. You know, no kind of please help me. They're empty, lifeless. His father, Tesfaya, who's sitting behind him and basically holding him up with his, with his knees or, or her gear so when the boy next to him would fall over if their parents weren't holding him up. Tesfaya is staring blankly ahead, kind of right through his son into space. His eyes, they're hard to see here, but his eyes spoke of guilt, and they basically said, what have I done to my son? What have I done to cause this? There in those eyes of the father and son, I found my calling. I mean, Voli was right. What I saw infected my soul. Their eyes were empty, but what I saw filled me with outrage. Hargirso's dead eyes enlivened mine. I saw wrongs and injustices that I hadn't noticed before. Why was hunger happening now after two years of bumper harvests? And I'll get into that in just a second. Why was it happening again, 19 years after the horrible famine of 1984, when we all pledged, my God, never again should this happen? We sang songs. We held hands in kind of an international global horror of 1984. 19 years later, boy. And why was it happening still at the dawn of the 21st century when more food was being produced than ever before? So what I saw became a disease of my soul. I needed to find answers to these questions. This is some of what I found. So here's other children in the emergency feeding tents. What I found is the parents here are all peasant farmers. The year before, Tesfaya, Hargirso's father, had come to the same market town carrying big 100-pound bags of corn and grain on his shoulders. They'd had two years of bumper harvests. Best harvest these farmers had ever seen in their lives. Best harvest the country had seen. After 1984, the push was on to produce, produce, produce. They produced. The bumpers came 2000-2001 season, 2001-2002. Wow, they have surplus crops. He proudly carries his surplus crops to the market. What does he find? Well, all the other farmers were bringing their surplus crops to the market at the same time because in Africa, because of this huge fall off in agricultural development spending and neglect that had happened since the 1980s, the infrastructure wasn't there to absorb it. Storage capacity is minimal. There's no big, gleaming, shining you know, international harvester silos anywhere in Ethiopia, or very few of them. 
anywhere in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, north of South Africa. Uh, they're flimsy little wooden storage things that are kind of open to the elements. The humidity gets in, the rain get in, the, the rodents get in, other pests get in, spores in the air. Uh, there's a lot of wastage. Uh, the roads are bad. Getting from, from the farm to the, to the market is difficult. These guys are carrying uh, the bags. Communications is bad. These guys have no idea that, hey, maybe prices are different in the country where there's a, where there's a, there, there's a shortage. There's no marketing system. What I wrote about after this first trip was that the markets failed before the weather did. These guys came. So what happened was all the, all the harvest is there at the same time. They got to pay back debts. They need cash. Their storage facilities are crummy. Might as well bring it to the market. Prices collapsed 80%. Catastrophic. Just imagine if there was 80% collapse of prices on any commodity in this country uh, and, 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 and the, 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 the outcry that would come from that. Um, what do these guys do? They reacted the same as any other farmers would anywhere else in the world. You lose money, cut back on expenses the next year. The next planting season, use less fertilizer. I think fertilizer use in the country declined 20-30%. Hybrid seeds the better quality seeds that would have higher yields. I'm not going to use them. I'm just going to use whatever seeds I got in the back of my hut. They're cheaper. They're free. They're here. Use of hybrid seeds went down 70% in the country that year. Uh, some farmers turned off their irrigation systems. They took land out of production. It was too expensive. Hey, I had a surplus. What good did it do me? I lost money. I'll cut back expenses. They knew they were going to have a lower, uh, uh, a lower harvest. But that was okay. What good had the surplus done? As long as they grow enough to feed their families, that Tesfaya can feed Hargirso and his other, his other three or four children and his wife. That would be fine. They all looked heavenward and waited for the rains. Rains didn't come. They were spotty. Harvest that they knew would be lower because they cut expenses all of a sudden was totally wiped out. Hunger spread famine spread. Farmers who a year ago were carrying their surplus bags of grain to the market are suddenly carrying their, dar- their starving kids. Exact same market. The markets failed before the weather did. Weather was an act of God. Markets were an act of man. Why didn't we pay attention to the markets? Produce, produce, produce. Hey, what, what happens when the production comes? Nobody paid attention to it. Out of the farmer's success came their failure, biblical. Feast directly to famine. It's the lot of so many farmers in Africa who don't have the support and from what happened with the neglect. Oh, what's this? German Amente, he's an Ethiopian farmer, grain trader, larger commercial farmer, Oh, and by the way, some of the, these were the peasant farmers had shown. Some of the commercial farmers, the larger farmers in Ethiopia that maybe have 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 acres of land, looks like you're driving through Illinois and Iowa, through the cornfields in Iowa, and, and, and the wheat fields. Some of them had their best harvest of their lives, and they lost $250,000. 
they're on the verge of bankruptcy because of the price collapse. They turned off their irrigation system in the middle of the famine. They took land out of production in the middle of the famine. They were almost broken uh, and, and, and almost crying because they knew what they, and they, they talked about it, what we've done is almost criminal to our country. What option did we have, they ask. Didn't we behave like farmers anywhere else in the world would? We had to cut expenses. Some of the farmers who have, uh, they're more commercial farmers that would have better storage facilities. Uh, you know, maybe granaries as big as this room, uh, uh, made out of concrete, made out of stone. Not really fumigated. Uh, circulation isn't, isn't very good. Storage won't even go too well. Uh, it won't last very long. In there, they, like farmers, were holding back some of their crops and storage, waiting for the price to rise. They weren't hoarding. There was no market. Why should they release this you know, when, when, when prices were rock bottom and the prices would even have collapsed more? This is Ethiopian grown grain. So Jermon, he's laughing. He runs to the top, scrambles to the top of one of his stacks of grain. Ethiopian grown grain, 2003, middle of the famine, 14 million people on the verge of starvation. Clamors to the top and a very sarcastic laugh says, Roger, take a picture of me. America, please send food to Ethiopia. Ethiopians are starving. We don't have enough food. They did. In some instances. Whoop. Wow. Two blocks from where these warehouses were in the town of Nazareth is the main road that runs from the port of Djibouti to the capital of Addis Ababa. Over that road was coming all the food aid that was coming into the, into the country. American, and most of it American food aid. God bless it, it saved, it, saved, it saved thousands, millions of lives. But what it did, market-wise, incentive-wise, to the farmers was devastating. American food aid mandates the food has to be American-grown, has to be shipped on American flag ships. It'll take four to six months to get it over there. Half the cost of American food aid is in the shipping. It takes longer and it's more expensive. We don't have the capacity or the flexibility in our food aid legislation to provide cash for instances like we saw here in 2003. Here's money to the World Food Program, uh, to Concern, the Irish Aid Agency, to, 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 to World Vision. Buy this grain first and then ship over American food aid when that's needed. These men were writing a letter to their government. Oh, and by the way, the Europeans in the 1990s, they switched to all cash. The Canadians, I think in some time earlier this decade, they switched to all cash as food aid. They don't send food anymore. They, 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 they send money, particularly because of what, 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 what happened here in the images. These farmers were writing a petition to their government saying, hey, can you tell the international donors, one, thank them, for the food aid. It's saving, it's saving a lot of lives. God bless that. We're very appreciative of that. But can they please send money to buy what we have here? Because the economics of the situation are, if we don't sell what we have stored here, we're not going to have money to buy the grain that the small farmers, Tesfaya, is growing next year. And we're not going to have any land place to store it. So we're back in the same situation again. They've got no markets to sell their, to sell their grain to. 
At the same time, I'm in Ethiopia. Scott's in the Palouse in the Washington State area talking to farmers. We're a great percentage of their, great, a certain percentage of their, their wheat, their pea, their lentil harvest is going in food aid. A group of American farmers, I think they were American wheat farmers, the same time these guys were writing the petition to their government, a group of farmers in the United States are writing the petition to the White House saying, hey, we've had a bumper crop of wheat this year. Our prices are under pressure. Do you think you can put more wheat in the U.S. food aid system? The conclusion of the farmers in Ethiopia is American farmers need starving Ethiopians. As an American, it was very difficult, obviously, to hear that. You have the weird, bizarre situation in Africa and in Ethiopia where there are farmers who are receiving food aid who are more worried about the weather conditions in Illinois and Iowa than they are about the conditions in Ethiopia because they want to make sure the American food is growing for food aid. It, it, it's developed a horrible uh, dependency syndrome. The cash part of food aid would be a great incentive also to the African farmers to produce as much as they can. Some Ethiopian economists figured that in the middle of the famine of 2003, 300,000 tons of grain went to waste in the fields of Ethiopian farmers because there was no market for it, there were no storage uh, facilities for it. There were stories of people, farmers coming up from the south, from the wheat uh, belt of Ethiopia as they came to this town of Nazareth where these pictures are and they saw the American food aid trucks coming by. They basically did a U-turn and went back and stored their grain back on their farms. Most of that grain probably went to waste after a couple of months. Again, market complexities, man-made issues. We can figure this out. You know, it's not, it's, not, it's not difficult. We can do something that's political policies, political will. Oops. Ah, these two guys in all their sartorial splendor. These are lentil farmers. A little bit down the road from where the warehouses were that we just saw. So after the warehouses, I drove further down the road in the direction of Djibouti, which is, you know, day's drive away, uh, a long way. Went a little bit out, see if I could talk to some farmers. These guys were standing by the side of the road, so I pulled over and talked to them. Uh, they're lentil farmers. They're on food aid. Their lentil fields were not doing well in the drought, but they had some lentils that were stored. Had no market for it. Prices had collapsed of lentils, too. As I'm talking to them, big couple of trucks of food aid come rumbling past the road, full of potholes as it goes. Some of the, some of the grain falls out of the bags and on the road. Trucks go by. These guys are curious. They run out to the road. What is it that fell down? They bend over and pick it up. It's lentils. They said, why, why are they sending lentils to Ethiopia? We, we, we grow our own lentils. Don't they know in America that we grow lentils in, the, in, in Ethiopia? And I said, no, I, I don't believe they do. Uh, and so, again, these farmers kind of left to themselves, bearing 100% of the risk. You know, where's their, where's their market? Uh, what we had was the very skewed ratio in 2003 that really, a set of numbers that really, I think, drives this point home. 
In 2003, the U.S. sent more than $500 million in food aid to Ethiopia to feed starving Ethiopians. Saved a lot of lives. $500 million in food aid to Ethiopia. That same year, U.S. agricultural development aid to Ethiopia was less than $5 million. Less than $5 million in aid to help Ethiopian farmers grow as much food as they can so they wouldn't be in a situation of starving and having to ask for food aid. $500 million food aid from America, less than $5 million in agriculture development aid. Can't we turn those numbers around? Again, outrage. In some of the other pictures, you saw green in the background. It's called a green famine. They're hungry because their, their crops have failed. They're on food aid, but they're already starting to get into their next planting season. It'll be months before that harvest comes, so they've got to be, have some food to eat in the meantime. Water, in a lot of instances, isn't a problem in Ethiopia. Ethiopia in, in Africa is known as, as, as the water source of Africa. These guys, the man with the, the scarf in a turban on his head, his name is Tesfahun Belichu. Tesfahun in the Amharic language means be hope. So when I saw Tesfahun, be hope, he was utterly devoid of hope. His little field, right beside this river, the Rib River, had been ruined by the drought. He was on food aid for several months. I said, hey, why don't you use the water in the river? He kind of fixes me with a, with, with a look of incredulity that, you know, we've obviously thought about that, and we would do that, and we've tried. We can't do it. Why not? One, it's expensive to do that on a sustainable basis, kind of year after year, crop after crop. And two, our government says we can't, and they'll come and they'll shut us down. Why is that? The water belongs in Egypt. The Rib River is a, is a tributary of the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile is one of the great waterways of Africa. It cascades through deep gorges. Uh, it could be harnessed for hydroelectric power. There's no dams on the Blue Nile. Because through years of international water right treaties, the water of the Blue Nile has been allocated to the downstream users, Sudan and Egypt. Ethiopia had the great fortune of never being colonized by a European power. Ethiopia also had the great misfortune of never being colonized by a European power. Because when the Europeans got together in their great councils of Europe to decide what to do about Africa, they said Ethiopians weren't represented. The British would stand up and say, oh, about water, about that Nile water. We need it in Sudan for our cotton plantations. Egypt need it, needs it for the, for the granaries and the fields that have been the granaries for civilization since the time of the pharaohs. 80% of the water, 80-85% of the water that runs through Egypt. So the Blue Nile runs through, through Ethiopia. In Khartoum, it meets up with the White Nile coming from Central African countries. They form a Khartoum, formed a Great Nile, speed up through the, flows up through the Sahara, through Egypt, 
brings millions and millions of acres to fruition. 80% of the water that runs, that's in the Great Nile that runs through Egypt comes from Ethiopia and the rains in the Ethiopian highlands. Ethiopia in 2003 had less than 500,000 acres of irrigated land in the entire country. Egypt in 2003 had about 8 million acres irrigated from the Nile, from canals that were built. This man's an Egyptian farmer, Samir. He has 60 acres, I think it was 60 acres, 60 hectares, 100 kilometers from the Nile. Canal network brought the Nile water to his farm where he was growing this whole wonderful cornucopia of fruits and vegetables. And he had cattle. I believe these are water buffalo calves. He's showering them. He's given, he's given his calves a shower. What he says is, hey, happy calves, fatter calves, fatter calves, more profit. That water, 80%, comes from Ethiopia. Tespahun, food aid, water runs right past his, right, right his drought-stricken plot. He's on food aid. Tespahun has no hope. This guy's using the water to shower his cattle. Those are the outrages. Not his door, not, oh, Dr. Borlaug, we're going the wrong way. One last thing on the outrage front. Not from Ethiopia, this is from Mali, cotton farmers in Mali. Uh, all hand done, they're walking behind their oxen. Uh, you can see the kind of conditions they're in by the clothes they're wearing. I was there, I think, in May or June of 2002, so I took this picture in Mali. Scott's in the Mississippi Delta, American cotton farmer, Ken Hood. He was the head of the American Cotton Council, U.S. Cotton Council uh, at the time. Great machinery, well-dressed. Which of these two farmers received subsidies from their government? Not these guys. They get nothing. They were told, instructed, the Mali government by the World Bank, don't you dare subsidize your farmers. You're not getting any more loans. U.S. cotton farmers, when the 2003 Farm Bill was passed, I think the increase in subsidies to American farmers, uh, the cotton farmers had the, the largest percent. That same year, the Mali cotton farmers were told they're getting less money. All the cotton comes together on the international market, both the Mali cotton and the U.S. cotton, because we're not making shirts and underwear over here anymore. So it goes on the international market. The Malians, they're not making shirts and underwear. So that goes on the international market. Same dynamics as with the harvest in Ethiopia. Prices go down. Subsidies cushion American farmers. Their government says they're not paying subsidies. Our revenues are less. You guys are getting less money this year. Three million families in West Africa depend on cotton farming. It's their major export crop. Uh, so... That's the outrage. And the outrage fills the first pages of the book. You know, I was hoping we were succeeding in, in, in writing about that when I sent the first draft off to the publisher, and one day I got a call, or I called the book's copy editor, 
to clear up some question that they had. Uh, I thought it was a style question. And she answered the phone and I said, well, how's it going? And she said, I'm infuriated. Uh-oh, I thought. I mean, the last word you want to hear from an editor is infuriated. Believe me, nothing good has ever come from an infuriated editor. <laughs> What's wrong, I asked. And Jesus, I was hoping it was, you know, her frustration was from an overuse of semicolons or, or something grammatical. No, no, she said, it's a good infuriated. I've just, finished, I've just finished a chapter on subsidies. Okay, I thought, the outrage is working. And then she asked, you know, tell me, does it get more hopeful? Yes, it does get more hopeful. The second part of the book is on the inspiration, because with the outrage comes the inspire. And in fact, the inspiration fuels more outrage. Because, you know, inspire because we can conquer hunger. We have, as I said, we have the knowledge, the tools, the science, and we should have the money. And in the book, we have plenty of, 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 of good examples, I hope, uh, of to follow, of individuals who have made, who have made a, a, a tremendous difference. So the inspire part fills the second part of the book. Um, and it highlights some of the work of the people on the front lines and individuals on the front lines of the effort to fight hunger. There's African entrepreneurs. There's Midwestern farm, farm town families. There's philanthropists, priests, and politicians. It's a weird combination that I never thought I'd say in one sentence, philanthropists, priests, and politicians. There's Southern housewives, corporate executives, all of them fueled by some measure of outrage, all of them providing inspiration. Just quickly, Norman Borlaug. This was during the Green Revolution. Norman Borlaug, 2007, 93 years old, still out in his, still out in his fields, cursing. Damn it, why hasn't the Green Revolution come? We've got work to do, let's get going. I want to see this before I die. As I said, he died a couple of weeks ago. Howard Buffett, Warren's son, farmer in Decatur, Illinois, philanthropist in his own right, amateur photographer. He was in Ghana one day, filming in an emergency feeding center. Looked through, the, looked through his lens. The eyes of this girl stared back at him. Howard, father of several children, looked in those eyes and put down his camera, and he said, now I know what I have to do. He's become a great activist and a, and a philanthropist on the, on the hunger front. He works in the field. He has scrapes on his arms. I don't know if his father knows what he, what he gets up to uh, a lot of time. Finally, Eleni Gabramadin, one of the great women of Africa, Somebody has pointed out before we don't have many women in these, in these films, and most of the farmers in Africa are women, and they do, they do the bulk of the work, and that's absolutely right. At some stage, I will correct my, uh, my film, my slide selection. Uh, for the moment, we'll have Eleni represent all the great women of, of Africa. She had been warning in the famine leading up to 2003, produce, produce, produce is great. What about the markets? She's a market economist. We got to get the markets right. 2003, it came to fruition. It provided her the motivation and inspiration through her outrage to basically start the Ethiopian Commodity Exchange. In April of 2008, the Ethiopian Commodity Exchange opened. It provides a place for price discovery for African farmers, uh, uh, incentive for them to produce as much as possible, hopefully uh, uh, sharing uh, uh, some, of the, some of the risk. 
of, 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 of their enterprise of farming. So inspire against all the odds, you know, let's, let's roll up our sleeves, you know, and get after it. There's a clamor that needs to be created. Let's create the clamor. Let's look into the eyes of the hungry and be outraged and inspire for what you will see in those eyes is that nobody should have to die of hunger. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.